From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. If you'd like to send us an email, we would be happy to receive that as well. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. If you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it, it may, easy for me to say, find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Looking forward to Pentecost and our celebration of that coming up. Yeah, you had like your sackcloth and ashes when you were sitting in the corner when I got here, starting a novena. Well, you know, that's that's an important way to begin it, with with penitence and follow it up with prayer, and then the Lord will, you know, will uh, pour down his gifts upon it. But uh, you're right. And funny you should bring this subject up, since we haven't talked about it in about three or four minutes now. And that is, today is the beginning of the uh, Novena for the Gifts of the Holy Spirit. This recalls the, the origin of the Novenas, of Novenas in general, which simply means nine days of prayer. And the uh, Proto-Novena, if you will, there's a word I bet you haven't heard recently. The Proto-Novena is what the Apostles did together with Our Lady in the Upper Room in Jerusalem as they awaited the coming of the Holy Spirit. On the nine days following Ascension, the ascension of the Lord, to the uh, Sunday in which the the first day of the week, the Sunday upon which the Holy Spirit de- descended upon them. And there we have nine days of prayer as a model for the church, and of course the whole plethora of novenas uh, uh, that the church uses that are available to Catholics for different devotional purposes. But this particular one that begins today, the novena for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, is modeled on those nine, named nine days and has the uh, in, a greater grace of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the in the already just in the just, and so each day dedicated to one of the gifts, and we have on our ewtn.com uh, website. Uh, you can actually go into our library or into our devotional section under Catholicism devotions Holy Spirit. And you will see uh, each of the days represented there and the, uh, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and what they mean. And prayers to pray uh, for those gifts and also including a consecration to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is a wonderful way to be, dispose yourself as the apostles and Our Lady did uh, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I can't promise you tongues of fire and raging winds or anything like that. Uh, the Holy no, Spirit no, is subtle, and it'll no probably... No healing for my poor sense of humor? Um, 
I think that's uh, unhealable, frankly, although all things are <laughs> wow. possible with God. <laughs> wow. Glad you threw that caveat in there. Well, you me, raised the topic. Gives me so. some hope. <laughs> so um, as we speak about the Holy Spirit, I wanted to just take a, a moment, uh, if I might, if, uh, if you all would indulge me. Um, you know, Mother Angelica started this Catholic radio deal in 1992 with the shortwave radio facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of 1996, we had six AMFM affiliates that had come on board, and we are now, you know, at 380 plus AMFM affiliates across the world, over 500 between English and Spanish um, around the world. The, the 380 is in the United States. Uh, uh, Five, above 500 for the entire world. And these are all people who primarily uh, got involved in this game because they felt like Mother Angelica had called them to do it. Um, almost all of them were not radio people. Um, most of them were not even business people and could barely balance their checkbooks. And low through these many years, they have found a way to to meander through things, but just as we've seen here at EWTN over the years, when a need presents itself, um, our Lord has a way of providing for those that are working according to his purposes. And one of those events that took place uh, was in Omaha, Nebraska, in the early days of Spirit Catholic Radio. Um, a young lady in uh, uh, who was, I think, living in Council Bluffs right across the river in mm-hmm. Iowa at the time, but had gone to... Uh, 12 years of Catholic school in Omaha as a as a girl, and she was the number one radio advertising sales book in the entire market and had a kind of a radical reversion back to her Catholic faith and, you know, took a substantial uh, reduction in in salary and everything else to go and help out this, this new Catholic radio mm-hmm. station. And uh, her name was Mary Jorgensen, and she was uh, a much better human being and a much better Catholic than she even was an advertising salesperson. And, uh, you know, she helped, uh, you know, Catholic businesses and other businesses that were uh, friendly to the gospel partner with the group in Omaha and help them, between the two of them, forward the gospel in some very creative ways. And Mary passed away this morning. Uh, after a two-year battle with pancreatic cancer. So not only does my respect for Mary uh, make this hit a little close to home for me, but my late wife Susie uh, passed away from pancreatic cancer. Her father passed away this past year from pancreatic cancer. And um, we had uh, one of our beautiful sisters in the Lord that worked at the parish in Des Moines, where we were parishioners within the last year, has passed away from pancreatic cancer as well. So, quite frankly, I've had my fill of pancreatic cancer for a lifetime, but I wanted to to take this moment um, to pay a little tribute to Mary Jorgensen. Um, She received viaticum. She received uh, the prayers of commendation. She received the apostolic pardon uh, prior to her death. And if there's anyone who was deserving of a happy death, is, is certainly Mary Jorgensen, and just from my experience with Susie and the experiences that I've had uh, where the final, uh, th- there's grace in knowing when the end is near. There, There is definite yeah. grace involved in that, and when you can receive those sacraments, it certainly creates a tremendous amount of hope 
that your reunion with our Lord has been hastened uh, by having those uh, steps taken. And uh, it's a beautiful part of our faith. You know, the, the, the more that someone who truly believes in what Holy Mother Church has taught throughout the years, the more we encounter death, um, I think the more hopeful we become. I, I think so, too. And that's really a wonderful story of, of how God uh, led her to uh, be involved in Catholic radio and to propagate it in the, in the greater eastern Nebraska and western Iowa part of the world and, and to, to do that and how many lives she must have touched. But I'm sure the Lord is uh, waiting for her as a good and faithful servant. Yeah, and as so many of uh, of the people that are involved in Catholic Radio do, she readily shared her expertise and her mm-hmm. knowledge and her talents with other people. So, you know, really by proxy, she has influenced uh, the way Catholic Radio is operated uh, all across the, the United States. So perpetual light grant uh, unto her, O Lord, or... Uh, May she rest in <laughs> may peace. May she rest in peace, exactly. Amen. Yes. And may her soul and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've got a couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. And if you are outside of the United States and Canada, uh, you can... Um, Give us a call as well. We'll put you straight to the front of the line. The number there is 1-205-271-2985. And as we said, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And uh, congratulations also going out today to another one of our EWTN Radio family members, WJPM FM 106.3. In Dumfries, Virginia, is celebrating their seventh year with us. Congratulations to everyone at St. John Paul the Great Catholic High School in Dumfries uh, from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN. couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls on this open line Friday with Colin Donovan. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday, unfettered access to a professional theologian, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, on Open Line Friday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Through redemptive Catholic journalism, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the church. You can get our trusted Catholic news right to your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. I promise you those lines are going to be full by the in the next five minutes or so, so it's a great opportunity for you to pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. First up today is Laura, a first-time caller in eastern Kentucky. Excuse me, watching us on YouTube. Laura, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I have a question about true life in God and the messages of Vasula Ryden. Mm-hmm. I have a good friend who is a recent convert of about one year to our church, and she claims that these messages that Vasula has supposedly been receiving for 33 years directly from Jesus Christ led her into the church. She is an ardent believer of these messages, which, according to my friend, is to the mission of true life in God and Vasula is to unite the Catholic and the Orthodox mm-hmm. Easter dates. They claim that uh, reading these messages will unite the church and lessen the chastisements, and that this woman is chosen by God for this mission, and she claims that this has received official church approval. And I'm wondering, is it okay to read these messages? Have these messages been officially approved by the Roman Catholic Church? I'm I'm hesitant to read them Mm -hmm. without knowing this, and she keeps encouraging me to read these messages and giving me these books. Right, yeah. Well, the the easiest solution is to ask her to uh, demonstrate the truth of what she said, because the last thing that I know of that has come out from the Vatican uh, during the pontificate of John Paul II, when Cardinal Ratzinger was the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, was quite negative on Vesula Ryden uh, in terms of its credibility. So, I mean, the answer to that question is clear for me, and uh, perhaps during the break I will, you know, find that text and be able to read it in the second half. So I think the answer to that is no. Uh, I've had many people who found useful things in this, uh, in, in her writings. Uh, as you noted, she was, a, and I'm, as far as I understand, is still a Greek Orthodox, but she has this mission which began 20 or 30 years ago, and so she continues to pursue that, Uh, but it's simply not true that this has the recognition of the church. That usually takes a very long process, and when revelations are ongoing, there is not going to be typically a statement by the church. Most cases private revelation, if it's in an apparition, which is a discrete event that has a beginning and has an end, that can be evaluated because it has ended. In the case of a life where a person is claiming, all the church can do is say there is evidence of the supernatural or there is no evidence of the supernatural, or if there's doctrinal errors in it and there were some found in it, uh, that no Catholics should not should not uh, read that, and so on. But when a person is alive, that's not going to happen in their lifetime. All of the mystics that the church finds are credible 
have died, developed a fame of holiness and intercession, the two characteristics the church looks for to open a cause of canonization, and after a period of local study at the diocesan level or at the level of a religious institute like the Franciscans or Jesuits or whatever, have demonstrated that holiness of life, and then being judged so by Rome, the person becomes a venerable. So once the church has made a a decision that a person is a credible witness to the truth of what they say, in this case, that God said this, or Our Lady said this, or Our Lord said this, you don't want to take anybody's simple word on that. Now, each individual can, when they see a person in holiness of life during their life, like a Catherine of Siena before she died, or a Padre Pio, or something like that, sure, we make a human personal judgment regarding the veracity of a person. But as far as the church uh, is concerned, there is a pathway. And so no living mystic will ever receive the approval of the church until they have died and have a period of time demonstrated holiness and fame of, fame, of, fame of holiness and fame of intercession, that they lived a holy life and that people who asked their prayers got answers to them. Uh, and then the causes started. So that, that element of it is certainly not true. The church simply doesn't do that with the living. There can be a personal credibility to an individual as Padre Pio or Mother Teresa. Obviously, John Paul II as the papal authority. That's a whole other category that has the authority of Christ when he speaks uh, uh, positively on teaching. That's something different. But as far as claims of mysticism, there's a process for that and she simply has not entered the process because she is alive. With regarding the book, book some negative things uh, were found by the church in any case, and Catholics were discouraged from reading it. Now, if that has changed since about 20 years ago, um, it's not to my knowledge, and I think of I would have heard of it. Yeah, that came out about 25 years ago. Yeah, around the turn of 20, the millennium. Yeah, 23 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, 1995, I yeah. think, is when uh, Cardinal Ratzinger issued that. suggested that dioceses not right. promote her stuff. Right, and that was something sent out to all the all the bishops in the world. He had previously made some statements in judgment, and they came. She actually came back to them, and they did dialogue, but they weren't able to settle that these issues were resolvable. So there were some difficulties in there that were not resolvable. Uh, so um, I would say, as a general matter. When you have all the great Catholic literature that the church has, as Mother used to say, why go chasing after apparitionists and mystics when at your corner church you've got Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament? That's where you go. you got the whole corpus of the church's mystical te- teaching, its dogmatic teaching, its moral teaching, the writings of saints and fathers and doctors of the church. Uh, that ought to be enough to keep the ordinary Catholic busy without going after things of which you you know not uh, whether they are credible or true. Next up is Dave. He's in Houston, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dave, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I and my wife have been married about 27 years, and we love each other very, very much. And we're sort of struggling with some natural, and we're both in our early 50s, 
we're struggling a little bit with some natural plant planting things, um, and we're sort of practicing what the story of Onan is, if, if that makes sense. And yes, and um, I've been I've been brought back to Catholicism, and and I would go every week, but I'm trying to go. I've been going every day for the past couple months, and really trying to follow rules. And and um, um, my wife and I. Uh, my wife says, oh, it's, uh, there's a lot of bonding there. And, and we both love each other very much. We tell each other that all the time. And I basically said, you know, the, the problem is that it, it, it has to be bonding, but it also has to be in a natural way. You know, it, it, it has to be kind of both. You can't just do one or the other. It has to be kind of a both type thing. And, um, you know, like I said, we, we kind of do what Onan was doing. And, and, I don't, and I've gone to confession like twice in the last two weeks, and I can't just keep going to confession all the time. So... Um, and I've watched the Ascension video on natural family planning, and and I've tried to communicate that a little bit. And my, you know, we're not really moving forward mm-hmm. with that as well as I'd like to. And I was just, um, we may not have to worry. Like I said, we're both in our fifties, but we know some some fifty year olds that have had that, that have had uh, that have gotten pregnant, and we're just really trying to avoid it. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of couples have the, those difficulties and those questions. Uh, that practice the church considers contraceptive because it's to avoid conception. It's a definitive avoiding of conception. Nat- the pill is a definitive uh, avoiding of conception. Uh, devices, whether for men or for women, are definitive avoiding and na- saying no to the possibility of conception. Natural family planning, however, is to utilize that which God has built into the fertility of the woman in order to avoid, for serious reasons, even if it is for the whole of life, and especially with the, with the older people and the possibility of genetic issues and so on, that would be a legitimate reason at that age. So that's the reason why that's natural family planning is recommended by the church. It is open to life because you're not avoiding conception, maybe indirectly. Actually, well, it can actually be used to affect yes. conception. I know a couple, and my <laughs> hand is raised. Our first child, which we had trouble. So this is this is the this is the usage which the church permits. Now. I think you have to flip your understanding of its, of the purpose of in rules, so to speak. The purpose of the Christian life and of natural family planning is not to conform to rules. It's to imitate Jesus Christ, his holiness, and his virtues. You're not acquiring virtue by not practicing the self-restraint necessary to comply with the rules, if you will. What the church is saying is not a rule. It's the nature, human nature. It's what God gave to human nature and intends human nature to be, to be used for those purposes for which he intended and created it. So to live in the holiness of life as a Christian is not to avoid rules, but to seek to acquire the virtues. Now, that means sometimes we fail to acquire the virtues and we may be, you know, a little bit on the other spectrum. By all means, that's what confession is for. Uh, For something, probably 90% of Catholics have to go to confession 
whether it's for sins of that, whether it's for um, sins in other areas, you know, lack of charity, uh, all kinds of things can you can go down the spectrum of the five of the seven capital sins. So confession shouldn't be avoided. So try to flip the mentality around to acquiring virtue, to imitate the holiness of Christ, and to use what God has given you in your bodies as a way to love him, to serve him, and fulfill yourselves in the process as well. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Unique opportunity for you. A couple of open lines on a Friday. 833-288-3986. We head next to Oceanside, California. Andrew is another first-time caller listening on JP2 Radio. Andrew, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, thank you very much. So my question has to do with my nephew. He's probably in his uh, mm-hmm. uh, early 30s, maybe late 30s. Um, raised Catholic, all the sacraments of initiation. Um, he gets married um, and outside the church uh, to a uh, woman that's uh, Indian of Indian origin or Indian descent, not American Indian, but uh, Indian. Sure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, and then later I'm hearing that. Uh, he has renounced the Catholic faith, in other words, as, as suggesting that he didn't get, he, he, he doesn't need to be married in the Catholic Church. And I'm discussing that with my son, and my son claims that, no, 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 because he's baptized, he has to be married in the Church, um, and, and I'm not sure yeah. what, what the answer is. Right, yeah. Well, uh, there was a real... Con- we, can, we can help you be sure. Yeah. <laughs> There was an actual canonical dispute here a number of years ago, probably a decade or two, on this very point, because the the law in the United States is somewhat different than in other countries, in part because of our unique history. You can think back to in the 1800s, all the uh, Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, and others who came over uh, from Europe and came to the United States, and the bishops were concerned about assimilation into the culture, and they made a number of uh, rules. I think many of them were done at the Synod of Baltimore, uh, sometimes called the Baltimore Council, such as they had to send their kids to Catholic schools, so this was really fostered the development of a parochial school system in the United States, and and some of our great saints who, who, you know, Elizabeth Ann Seton and others who were involved in that. So... There was that concern, and one of the things they did is we know that by the natural law to baptize people marrying, uh, uh, make a sacrament, and even two people who are not baptized, or if one is baptized and one isn't, as in in the case you described likely, uh, that by the natural law they are married, and uh, so therefore they have the obligation to each other that that marriage uh, conveys, and that is to remain faithful to each other throughout life. But they made the requirement that in the United States you had to be married according to the canonical form. In other words, 
before your parish priest, or if you wanted to be married somewhere else, you get a dispensation to be married in a different location or by a different priest or even by the minister of one of the parties or by the rabbi of one of the parties with the appropriate dispensations for those kinds of situations. And so technically, from the point of view of the church, the person is, is not married. Um, and so there was this canonical dispute, I mean, among canon lawyers, uh, that's still the law in the United States, among canon lawyers, whether that was a good thing or not, uh, in that it made for a lot of invalid marriages and so on. But you have added to a wrinkle, a wrinkle to it that uh, I think many of them in discussing this matter hoped would not be the case, and that is the renunciation of one's baptism, which is a very severe step simply to avoid a, an inconvenience of being married in the church uh, because it's a, it's a public form of apostasy. Uh, so that, that is the seriousness of this the marriage situation would have been easily resolved to be, uh, you know, uh, resolved before the local, to the local bishop's authority uh, to get the dispensation post-event, post-facto, post-factum, and that could have been done. But to renounce one baptism, that is very serious. Uh, so it was less serious up until then, and now it is more serious having done done so. So we hope that there is some falsity in that for his sake because, well, I think it speaks for itself. Thanks, Andrew. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Carolyn called in from St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio, and she wanted to know if you could explain the difference between big T tradition and little t tradition. Sure. Um, yeah, the word tradition is thrown about as if it's uh, all of them are equivalent, and they aren't. Um, I'll have to go back and look on the website. Like 25 years ago, I put a FAQ on the website on tradition, capital T, tradition, little t, and traditionalism, which at that time meant those who have separated from their church, which uh, hopefully is less and less true, but... Big T tradition is quite clear. The church teaches that there is uh, there is one deposit of the faith derived from sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and sacred tradition. So sacred scripture, we know, it's the word of God written down. Before there was sacred scripture, and just think about this logically, before there was sacred scripture, there was sacred teaching. Tradition means, in the, from the Latin, trotere, to hand on. Christ gave the apostles the authority, and they and the teaching to sanctify, baptize, to govern. We see that in the Ascension account. Go forth to the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And he'll be with them to the end of the world. Well, they died, so to keep that promise, he's got to be with those whom they appointed to replace them. And this is the whole apostolic succession of the bishops from the apostles. But before there was the scripture, there was the Old Testament, of course, but before there was the New Testament, there was the apostles' teaching. 
And St. Paul even alludes to this when he says, not just what I wrote you in a letter, which was not yet a scripture, but just a letter from Paul, but also what I taught you. So he wrote letters and he taught them, and those are the two fonts, the scripture and the tradition. They're only scripture because the church said, oh, these letters of St. Paul, they're apostolic. We're going to keep those. And they went into the Bible, into the deposit of the faith. But they were the teaching of Paul in writing and orally. So when you're looking at big T tradition, your question is always, is it apostolic? So what's apostolic? The church has a standard. Since the apostles were the ones commissioned by Christ to teach, to pass on the faith, which they did in writing and orally through their teaching, then those who came after them, so, you know, Timothy and Titus, uh, the, the other uh, bishops that we know of the late first century, Clement, Bishop of Rome, writing to the Corinthians, uh, the bishops in Antioch, like uh, Ignatius, the successor of St. Peter when he was the bishop in, in Antioch, actually, before he was, went to Rome and uh, participated in the founding of the church there and was put to death. So you look throughout the Mediterranean, James in Jerusalem, you look where all the, Mark in Alexandria, all these churches, people who were given the authority to teach, to hand on the faith, there's a tradition. They handed it on to the next generation. They handed it on to the next generation. And so on and so on for hundreds and now 2,000 years. So to be an apostolic tradition, big T, there must be some evidence that it's rooted in that. And the evidence is we have writings of many of the fathers of the church from the first 600 years. And wherever the church sees something that is unanimously taught by all of the fathers of the church who speak on the matter, they don't speak on everything. They're not encyclopedists who, you know, are all the gamut of what Christ said and, and the gamut of what we're handing on. No, they speak on discrete things of importance in a particular time, maybe to evangelize the first case, catechize in the case of Cyril of Jerusalem and many others, uh, to solve the problems uh, uh, of heresy, as the different councils did. And when you look into that, you're looking at what was unanimously agreed by those who spoke on the matter was of apostolic origin. And the theory behind that, of course, is if you went to Armenia, if you went to Jerusalem, if you went to Egypt, if you went to Rome, if you went to Gaul, if you went to wherever, and in all these disparate places you're teaching the same thing, it all runs back to the apostles and therefore to Christ. That's capital T tradition. Now the church then and her councils and that have concluded other things from, from what was held. They made refinements. Christ promised them the Holy Spirit, promised the apostles. That means he promised it to their successors that the Spirit would lead them into all things. So when Arius raises the question of whether Christ is God, he said not. The church said yes. They defined it a little bit. They went deeper. And by teaching authoritatively across the board with unanimity, it became part of the deposit of the faith. This is what the magisterium is. When there is something that is held, that is deepened, defined, it becomes part of the tradition Little t tradition, example of that. Uh, the Byzantine rite, all the different, we have, what, 21 uh, what are called sui juris, sui juris churches, which means they have their own government, government basically. 
but they have their own liturgical style. So the Ruthenians, the the Ukrainians, the Maronites, the Copts, all of these, both Catholic and Orthodox uh, versions of them, have their own liturgical rites, their own canon law that came down by the practice uh, within their church. So little t traditions are ecclesiastical traditions. They're incarnations of the faith, as you will. The faith as it's lived out in Ukraine or as it's lived out in um, in the Middle East or as it's lived Lebanon, out at Rome or Israel. Lebanon or in uh, South India in the state of Kerala, the St. Thomas Christians. It's the faith lived out there and certain practices uh, become habitual. The way they pray, their devotions are not necessarily what we're used to in the Roman rite. Um, so a lot of things are little tea traditions, and people get very attached to them, and they hate to see them go. After Vatican II, that was a big dispute as to, well, we're losing all these nice little traditions, but they weren't big tea traditions. Even the liturgical forms were not generally big tea traditions, although within the liturgical forms that are things that are essential that come from the apostles, and the church knows which they are and which it can change and which it can't. So little tea traditions, ecclesiastical traditions, those are, you know, those are things which are expressions of the faith. You know, we have, you know, even among the different ethnic groups in, in the church, you know, the way the, the Poles celebrate a feast might be different from the way the Mexicans celebrate the feast might the way from the Anglo-Saxons and the Irish celebrate a feast because they have their own ethnic traditions of Catholicism in their country. So a lot of things that are traditions are very important because they're expressions of the life and faith of the people in a particular place. But it's only the big T traditions, including sacred scripture, as a written form of that teaching, teaching of Christ and an account of him. So scripture and the big T traditions are what the faith is dependent upon and essential to it. The little t traditions are important, very important. They're important to peoples. They're important to the church. And they're not changed without a great deal of difficulty and certainly not without a great deal of grumbling and and other things as we've seen in the last 50 years or so. But nonetheless, they are changeable because of the churches and the church has authority over that which it created. That's the difference. God has authority over scripture and tradition. It's the word of God. And when the church says, this is in the word of God, we're obliged. When the church says, you know, we're going to wear a particular color at mass because it means that's a tradition. We wear white for the resurrection in the West. Uh, I think they, I'm not sure what they wear, but I know when the, uh, when the Jesuits went into China or maybe, maybe it was the Franciscans, they couldn't do that because that was a color of mourning. So they had to choose a different color. And they could because it's only a human tradition, ecclesiastical tradition. 833-288-EWTN. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Building on a previous question, Linda wants to know, can you explain the reason why contraception conflicts with God's plan? Because, as I, I sort of was alluding to in, in what I said there, it's an in, impenetrable burden is, is placed to conception, to life. 
If God created the sexual faculties of the human being, not for digestion, not for, for breathing, you know, not for thinking, but for reproducing, then we look for the ends and purposes of those faculties he gave us. They are to unite the couple, the unitive way, as uh, Paul VI, John Paul II used to speak a lot about that, and the procreative. They're both important. They're equally important. They're inseparable. But the procreation is ultimately the end of and the purpose because it doesn't serve. It has that unique character about it that Although the other occurs as well, it doesn't, it doesn't, wasn't created for that purpose, but for procreation. There are all kinds of things which form, contribute to a unitive, uh, unity of life. Everything in a married couple should do, I suppose, should contribute to a unity of life. This is only one thing, even though it's the most important thing, uh, to, uh, to perform the marital act and to have children. That's the most important thing, but it doesn't encompass the entirety of the unitive way. Whereas for that purpose of those faculties, it is the only thing, and there to be unobstructed, to be placed in impenetrable instructions such as the different forms of contraception does, is to say no to God and his purposes for the sexual faculty. And that's why it's sinful, not because Paul VI said so, but because he was successor of the apostles as Pope, speaking infallibly that this is the truth, and the church has always believed it. And I think there are a number of studies on this point that show clearly that from the very beginning of the church, the church opposed two things, abortion and contraception. Did it in the first century, it does it in the 21st century. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for Vatican Insider Saturday at 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, Joan welcomes Father Peter John Cameron. Uh, He'll share some compelling insights on homilies and sermons. That's Vatican Insider Saturday, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Um, Edwin would like to know, can you explain why Jesus didn't observe the Sabbath? And he has the quotation here, why would they fast when they're with the bridegroom? Right, yeah, and he even, uh, our, our Lord uses an example from the, the scriptural tradition we were just talking about. He uses the example of David and picking the grain uh, on Sunday because as he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the same thing is true for keeping the third commandment with respect to the celebration of the day of the resurrection, the Christian Sabbath. And that has to do with, uh, in the end, if Christ came to save us and die for us, then he did it for us. And so we owe him the great debt, and we fulfill that by honoring him, by going to Mass on Sunday and filling that in so uh, that obligation of, of gratitude and thanksgiving insofar as we're able. Uh, but it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that for sufficient reason other things are not, uh, are not compatible with that. And so in the Jewish tradition, the Pharisees had made, as a matter of rigor, 
rules about keeping the Sabbath. They were not the only party in Israel. The Sadducees were another one. The Essenes were a third. So there were different theological opinions. And if you think of what the different parties in uh, in Israel had, they were theological opinions about the meaning of the Scripture and the application of it. And the Sadducees had a very rigorous and hard understanding of how to observe the Sabbath up to the point of not even getting close to offend against it. You can only walk so far on a Sunday. You have to do this with your dishes and so on. That's come down in the tradition. So all of those things were meant to avoid without any possibility of doing it, the, uh, the, the Sabbath, uh, observing of the Sabbath. The church doesn't look at, like it like that. It's not the rules of the Sabbath we were made for, but for loving the Lord and also made to give him glory. And we can do that on Sunday, and it's, incom- it's compatible with a great many other things as well. And so it's compatible with pulling your ox out of a ditch, raising people from the dead, and doing all the other things that he would do on a Sabbath to the consternation, largely of the Pharisees. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Chris in the great state of South Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Chris, you are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Sure, you're welcome. Go ahead. So my question has to do with kind of with the contraception that you've already been speaking about today. Um, I know a young couple who had four children. Mm -hmm. Um, They're both in the Catholic faith, and their fifth pregnancy was a set of twins that um, were born early. All five of her pregnancies have been C-section. How do they go about fulfilling their their marriage requirements, wifely duties, if you want to use that unappropriately sounding term, mm-hmm. to and, and yet still support the family that will that will have a mother that can financially and and emotionally and health wise even be able to to stay alive and, and be a mom for for her family for for many more years. She's less than 30 years old, and I know mm-hmm. she has a lot of childbearing years in front of her. Sure. Well, the answer is the same as I told the gentleman, um, and that's to observe virtue. Natural family planning permits the, 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 the various unitive satisfactions that comes from the marital act. Uh, it just means that you don't do it at certain times of the month. Um, I mean, there are some great stories in this regard of the success of the, of the missionaries of charity in India to teach poor women how to use natural family planning. Because obviously, in a nation with great overpopulation, it's not perhaps reasonable to have these huge families un, unassociated with the number of kids you can bear. Frankly, our pressures in the West although we, they seem to exceed our capacity to solve in terms of how many kids I can finance, compare not a, a nothing compared to the poorer countries in the world who have the same problem. And yet the missionaries of charity were able to teach fa- natural family planning. And the numbers, uh, the amount of success in that case of properly taught and observed natural family planning are like 98% if your object is not getting pregnant at this time. 
The difference with contraception is not getting pregnant, and if God gives me a pregnant, makes if I get pregnant, I'm not open to that whatsoever. It's a different mentality. And Humanae Vitae, the encyclical on that, on 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 married life and uh, human life that John, uh, Paul VI published, is very clear on the kinds of exceptions for health and financial circumstances and others. Uh, it is a serious obligation that couples need to pray over. But um, to you know to say that there must always be the satisfaction of a desire is to say that. I'm not required to observe any kind of any kind of chastity, any kind of virtue. So I think grace excludes that that that's what God is is saying we ought to do. So the situation of that couple is no different from the situation of poor people in all over the world who have lots of children. They should get properly trained um the Billings method uh there's a number of them. You know, oh, my Creighton Method. The Creighton Method. There's uh, several of them out there. Get properly trained, and it's successful to and get pregnant if you have difficulty, and it's successful if, before God, you can conclude that this is simply not the time, emotionally, medically, or other reasons we can afford. If in the future we can, we will, but this simply is not the time. In those circumstances, it's successful. And there are countless stories of the necessity to discuss these things in learning the method has brought the couple closer together than they've ever been. That's been one of the early fruits that was actually seen is, you know, husbands blithely go about their interests and their business knowing absolutely nothing about what their wife is going through and about. And uh, this obliges them to be more serious about those matters and to think about each other and to plan accordingly, and to do it in a reasonable, rational fashion. And very quickly, Kathleen and Boise, listening on Salt and Light Radio, wants to know why the Annunciation is not a holy day of obligation. I don't know, but then I don't run the church. So nobody, as far as I know, maybe some of the bishops have asked for it, and if they ever do, uh, I'm sure it will be given consideration. 833-288-EWTN if you'd like to call us and leave a message on our listener comment line we would love to have you do so on behalf of our host Colin Donovan our producer Michael McCall call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven Mr. Jeff Burson I'm Jack Williams thanks so much for tuning in back at it Monday with a brand new week of EWTN's open line until we get together then God bless God bless